0: Well perhaps in line with the um, confession with which Jan started, I ought to tell you that one of the, um, the dubious privileges of a private education is that I was caned three times at school, so uh, well, we'll not start a competition, but, uh, <laughs> and if you want to know the details then uh, I shall be running away after the service. <laughs> It's interesting, though, isn't it, that that whole sense that we have of our own um, sinfulness, I suppose, is the theological word for it, isn't it? The the things that we've done wrong and the the shame that we bear is something that makes quite an imprint on us. It makes an imprint, uh, what what age were you, John? Seven? (laughs) Um, And it leaves a mark. We'll see as we go on, I think, with this, this passage that in some ways the, one of the um, key messages of the Gospel is that that shame, while we bear it, does not need to um, affect the, 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 the trajectory of our lives. It is, it is covered by the grace of God. It's not always easy to believe that, is it? And the the sense we have of our own sinfulness is is quite strong often. But that's the message of the gospel, that the the grace of God covers that in us and restores us in his sight. And perhaps that's the thing that, (laughs) actually, this Pharisee really didn't understand very well, um, that sense of, of forgiveness because of confession and allowing the grace of God to work. But so here we are. Luke 8, 18, 9 to 14, holier than that. I want want to just um, actually say a couple of things by way of introduction. Um, One is about the lectionary and the other is about parables. Um, Stephen, when he was preaching last week, uh, introduced the idea of the lectionary and said a little bit about it. I wanted just to um, add a, um, a sentence or two to that. we over this next period of time, we're going to be using the Revised Common Lectionary for uh, preaching themes, and the lectionary is a, a just a schedule, really, of, of Bible readings, and it includes uh, an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel reading, and a reading from the epistles, and it, it's, it's a three-year cycle. Um, so at the end of the three years go back and repeat the thing again the principle of it is that over the three years of the cycle it should cover pretty much most of of the important passages in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament and many churches many denominations use this um, as a basis for their services so there will be many Churches throughout Scotland, and indeed further than that, who will be using similar passages. One of the interesting things about it is that in the, in the three year cycle of the lectionary, in each year, one of the synoptic gospels, that is one of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the principal gospel. And the, the readings from John's gospel are spread throughout the lectionary cycle in each of the years so what we're doing is we're joining the lectionary cycle actually towards the end of, of the third year of the cycle so it's, it's Luke is where most of our gospel readings are coming from um, and that's why when, when Stephen was preaching last week he was preaching on the, the first eight verses in Luke's gospel and today we're looking at these, these next verses um, so that's what it's, it's designed to do The second thing I wanted just to mention is is the whole thing about parables. Um, Of course, Jesus used parables a lot. You know that. In fact, in in one of the... I think it's in Matthew, Jesus says something along the lines of he didn't speak to the people except in parables. And a lot of the parables that Jesus used... Well, you'll know them. I mean, uh, things like the Good Samaritan and um, the Prodigal Son and so on. And these are stories that actually have have entered into a, a, a culture not just an English-speaking culture, actually, but, but culture much further than that. And one of the things that's interesting about that is it, it tells you about the astonishing power of story, doesn't it? You know, that the, most of you, I would guess, maybe all of you, would, would be able to give me an outline, for example, of the Good Samaritan. And it, that, that way of, of, of teaching gets in under our skin, it gets past our our brains, (laughs) and and gets in a a kind of deeper level, and uh, those parables have an astonishing power. Um, It's interesting, you know, when you ask the question, why, why did Jesus use parables in this way? Well, actually, you know, in, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 13, his disciples asked him that very question. Why are you using parables? And this is what he said. He said to the disciples, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing they do not see... Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So that's that then. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty enigmatic, isn't it? It, It's it's a kind of strange response from the mouth of Jesus about why he uses parables so much. I, I suppose you could paraphrase it in a way by saying this, that those who harden their hearts, who resist God, will not understand. And actually what is necessary for understanding is a degree of faith and of commitment. And, And we know that that's true, don't we? Because there are some people who can hear these things, you know, and it just goes in one ear and out the other and there's no... it doesn't land at all. And for others, it becomes something that is is integrated into their lives. And the difference is faith. Saint Anselm was an early um, Archbishop of Canterbury in about the 10th or 11th century, and he said this, for I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. That's really interesting, isn't it? And actually, one of the things I think it does is it, it kind of puts a little bit of a caution in there about human reason. Our generation and our culture exalts reason. I mean, that's not a bad thing. I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not hitting against reason. That's a good thing, I, you know. Common sense is sometimes a bit lacking, isn't it? Uh, But reason's a good thing. But actually what this is saying is there are some things that we will not understand without faith. Because unless I believe, I shall not understand. And I think that's probably true of the parables and when we carry these things in our hearts, many of us. But if there's no commitment of faith there, we won't really understand that. It won't give us the the, the comfort and the, the hope and the forgiveness that we may hope for. So faith allows for understanding. Okay, well, let's um, turn to the parable itself. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And in, in at one level, it, it's quite an uncomplicated story, isn't it? But it's a brutally effective story, a bit like the, the story of the man, um, the parable of, of the man who built these bigger barns. Do you remember that one? That the, man, the rich man who's got plenty of produce, and he says, uh, I'll, I'll tear down these barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll be okay for the rest of my life. And the punchline in that parable is, you fool, for this night God will require your life of you. And this is a similar, this has a similar kind of boom in it at the end, because it's not the one that we expect, the, the kind of religious figure who goes home justified, before God, it's the, it's the tax collector, it's the sinner not the ones that work for Centre One as uh, Jan pointed out <laughs> a different kind of culture um, but those that would have been seen as, as cheats and, and devious in their own culture and in fact they, there are many um, yes it's an uncomplicated story and there's an obvious lesson in there and the, and the lesson is simply this that Self-righteousness is toxic to spiritual life. That if I think of myself as good enough, better, then that will actually destroy my spiritual life. Those two things are toxic to each other. There there are many um, depictions in, in art of this story... And actually, they all have the same sort of feel about them. This is the one from... um, Oh, is that you or me? Yeah, there it is. Um, They all have the same sort of body language in them. And it's an easy thing. Well, I'm going to say it's an easy thing to to depict. I couldn't do it. But the, 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 the the way they're standing, these figures are the same in all of the ways that it's depicted and you've got the, the, the Pharisee there at the front you know who's full of his own importance and he thinks he's absolutely wonderful and you've got the, the, the tax collector in the background there who's uh, bowed down and not even looking up to heaven and, and the body language of the the picture gives you the the story really the unshakable self-confidence of the Um, Pharisee, and the demeanor of the tax collector who won't even look up to heaven. And the punchline, of course, is it's the guy at the back who made real spiritual contact with God that day, as the parable says, who went home justified before God. Luke's gospel has a particular interest in outsiders. Stephen mentioned this last week. The the women, the the woman of of the um, parable of the unjust judge. uh, Luke's interested in in women. He's interested in uh, tax collectors. He's interested in the people outside the normal sort of run of of religious people. Maybe because he was a Gentile himself. And uh, the other three gospel writers... uh, Matthew, Mark and John were all Jewish. So maybe Luke brings a kind of a, an outsider's eye to these things and he notices the way that Jesus deals with outsiders like this tax collector and it's often these characters are not the religious types who are closest to God so the Pharisee represents the ugly face of religious bigotry And all our sympathies in this story are with the tax collector, aren't they? But we need to be a little bit careful with that because in our society, we are the religious types. You and I. We are the ones who come to church regularly. We are the ones who give of our income. Some of us might even tithe although i do not sure that very many of us would fast twice a week. And Jesus is not condemning those practices. He's not saying tithing and fasting is a bad thing. What he's doing is he's pointing out the trap of self-righteousness that religious people very easily fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves as better than others. And that is, that's a trap that's, that's real for us. And part of this is, is a warning to those of us who, who think of ourselves as religious. So it's a memorable story with an obvious lesson. I, I want to dig a little bit deeper um, into this and ask this question why did Jesus tell this parable? What was he hoping to achieve by telling the parable? And the, the, the introduction in fact that was part of the reading that Alan did um, gives us a clue to that. It says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else Jesus told this parable. So that's the context. He's telling it for people who were inclined to think of themselves as the bee's knees and everybody else is nowhere. But what did he hope to achieve? And it's surely more than making the the Pharisees in his audience squirm and the tax collectors think, woohoo, isn't it? There's more to it than that. The Pharisee in this parable is in a top dog mindset. (laughs) Do you know what I mean by that? I'm up here, you know, and you, you horrible lot, you're down there. That's only dad's army, doesn't it? And that's the mindset that this guy's in. And my question is: why did Jesus address this parable to that top dog mindset? Was it just to take him down a peg or two? Or is there more to it than that? And I, I think there is more, and, and perhaps the more is to do with this it's to do with transformation that actually what Jesus is after it, for the tax collector and maybe for the uh, the Pharisee or rather for the Pharisee and the tax collector is a change of of mind and of heart he wants their lives to be transformed he wants them both to have that genuine spiritual encounter that is encapsulated in those words justified by God. And transformation is, is what achieves that. There are two ways of transformation that I see here. One is from pride to humility. They, the Pharisee comes swaggering into the temple, you know, he's full of his own importance, he's throwing his weight around, he's absolutely certain that God is on his side. I don't know if you spotted it in the, in the reading but it, what it says is that he stood up and prayed about himself. <laughs> you know, what a good guy I am. I'm glad I'm not sitting down there with you lot. For goodness sake, you horrible people. You're all the robbers and the adulterers and the tax collectors down there. And I'm standing up here, you know. <laughs> ah, yeah. And he lectures God about how wonderful he is, doesn't he? And the tax collector would have been among the most despised in the society and he stands at a distance and beats his breast and asks for mercy. And the primary transformation is from pride into humility. Not taking that stance of, look at me but being willing to say, you know, God, I need your mercy. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. And that's where I stand. And when I worked in interim ministry, you know, I I, I got a new insight in some ways into the way that pride is so destructive of spiritual life. Because it affects not only individuals, actually pride affects churches. And even communities sometimes. One of the the places where I, I was... Uh, in interim ministry, um, almost nothing really happened through that period of um, interim ministry because the, the people in that congregation were so proud of their history and of their culture and of the way that they did things. And, you know, they, they basically were saying, We've got it all sorted. You know, we don't need anybody else to tell us what to do or how to behave or anything. And there was almost no progress, I think, through that period of time because the, the, the pain of stripping away pride is major, you know. It's, it's about letting go of our sense of ourselves and allowing God to hold us. And that's that's a painful thing to do, and and it can it can infect a congregation. You know, we're we, we're the people. You know, we've we've been doing this a long time. We've been here. We've been here since uh, you know year dot, and uh, we've always done it like that. So you you're telling us we've got to change? Oh no no no, we're not going to do that. And that's pride, and it, it can have a devastating effect on congregational life. But Jesus doesn't want to leave us in our pride, even, even, you know, individually or, or as a group or as a congregation. Jesus doesn't want to leave us in our pride. He didn't want to leave this Pharisee in his pride. He wants to transform that pride into something else, into humility, into dependence on God and simply saying, God, without you, I don't know what I would do. Please help me to understand. Please lead me. Please be the one that shows the way for me. So, pride needs to be stripped away. And, I, you know, the question for us, I suppose, is uh, as a congregation and as individuals, what sort, of, what sort of pride do we need to let go of? Because it will be there. One of the reasons why it's quite good to say I was caned three times at school. <laughs> Not because I'm proud of it. I'm not proud of it. That's exactly the point. But it, you know, when, when we're able to say those kind of things to each other, then uh, that's the beginning of letting go of pride. You know, you may look at me and you may see whatever you see, but let me tell you <laughs> that it's not as good as it looks. It may look pretty awful, but it's not as good as it looks. <laughs> And we need to let go of of that pride. Okay. So the second um, transformation is from shame to grace. Because, you know, it's possible to be trapped in shame as much as it is to be trapped in grace. In in pride, rather. Um, Shame is that uh, debilitating sense that what I have said or done cannot be redeemed. The tax collector is ashamed. He's ashamed of what he's done. He may be even ashamed of who he is. And I, in, in some sense, I think he's trapped in that. And there's a transformation that needs to take place there too. We're trapped by shame when we refuse to allow God's grace. To do what it needs to do in ourselves. I, I, you know, I'm sure you've met people like that over the years. I've certainly met quite a lot. Sometimes, when you have conversations with people about, you know, Christian faith and uh, coming to church and stuff like that, they say things like, "I couldn't come because the roof would fall in." <laughs> you have those kind of conversations, and you know, it, it's a throwaway line. I mean, it's just a joke in some ways. But sometimes, it hides a much deeper sense of shame about who I am. Uh, And I know the truth of that, and God knows the truth of that, and my sense is that shame will never be eradicated. It will always be there. And as I said at the beginning, it it leaves a mark, doesn't it, the things that we do wrong? But grace covers them. The transformation here is from shame to grace. Transformation is never painless. It means taking risks. It means seeing ourselves differently. I wonder what it would have meant, you know, for the tax collector and for the Pharisee to allow that transformation to take place. I think for the Pharisee, it, it, it must have been letting go of all those airs and graces, mustn't it? And for the tax collector, I think it must have been God loves me. <laughs> You know, I can look up to heaven. I can say, I am a child of God. This transformation needs to take place in each of those characters and they represent something in us. They represent the stripping away of, of pride and the letting go of shame in order that we might encounter the living God. Let us pray.